put it in the terms of phones or computers, that's most accurate. But I was thinking particularly of in the past, what many of us had, had dealt with, and that was a vacuum cleaner salesperson. You know those people, right? It, it can be very annoying when they attempt to persuade you that their vacuum and no one else's has certain capabilities. I mean, they may tell you how their vacuum can clean your curtains, puff up your pillows, blow dry your hair, uh, shampoo your dog, take your kids to school. Well, they, they don't, of course, tell you some of those things. But it feels that way. It feels that way when they're done with their sales pitch. They represent their product as the end of all your problems. They'll get rid of all the chaos and disorder in your life. They'll bring order and direction to your life if you just buy this vacuum. If you're lucky, if you're lucky, you might get a demonstration of how it actually vacuums your carpets or your floors. They tend to uh, misrepresent the, the value and the ability of the vacuum in a hope that you will buy it. And I just, that just drives me crazy. I have to sit through it. It's like, it's like sitting through a timeshare condo presentation. It's like, ah, stop it. I'll either buy it or I won't. I'll, I'll, you know, stop misrepresenting what it can do. And, and so I think, in a sense, as we are looking at our text for today and next week at least, that uh, Paul is dealing with the same problem. Not the problem of vacuum misrepresentation, but with misrepresentations about the law. What the law can do for you. So for the past few weeks, we've been studying the, the doctrine of... Oh, come on now. Sanctification. Right? Sanctification. Remember where we started? The gospel, the beautiful gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then to the Greek. And it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Remember that? And then we covered why we need the gospel and the, the revelation of God's righteousness because we are condemned as sinners before him. That was chapter 1, 18, all the way through 320. And then we talked about how we get God's righteousness through justification by faith. We're declared righteous, not by the law, but by our faith in Jesus' sacrifice for us. And that was chapter 321, all the way through chapter 5 and verse 21. And then we came to chapter 6, and we are covering the doctrine of... Few of you got it that time. Yeah, sanctification. The simple definition of sanctification, as, I, as I've told you before, is that it's being set apart as God's possession and for his use. Of course, that's being set apart from sin uh, unto God as his possession and for his use. It, it is... You know, sanctification is the gracious operation of God involving our res- responsible partici- participation where he delivers us as justified sinners. We're already justified. Now he delivers us as justified sinners from the penalty and the power of sin. We realize that we're not going to face that penalty anymore and, and we don't have to give in to sin. It has no right to have dominion over us. And it also renews our entire nature from the inside out according to his image. He makes us more and more like himself. This is the doctrine of sanctification. And he enables us to live in a, in a way that pleases him. To live in a way that brings glory to him. Which is why we're here. God created us to bring him glory. He deserves it. And that, there's no pride in that. That's just the reality of the, the creator God who said, you know, I think I'll, I'll create people in my image and I want them to represent my image and, and they'll bring me glory. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. If we were to think that way, that would be sinful pride, but it's not sinful pride with God. So, well, there is a great deal of uh, scripture which speaks about the subject of sanctification. We, we've been focusing our attention on just this section of the book of Romans where Paul addresses it in detail. I mean, gets down and dirty with it. 
in three chapters, he gives what you might call the, the foundation or the basic fundamental principles uh, regarding sanctification, how God makes us his possession and, and makes us fit for his use. So in brief terms, just to remind you, there are three principles in three chapters. The first principle is that believers are dead to sin. That's chapter 6. Chapter 7, as we'll see this week and next, is that believers are dead to the law. And then the third principle will be in chapter 8, and that is that believers are alive in the Spirit. Praise Him. So, first, it's critical to understand the meaning of these principles, dead to sin and dead to the law and alive in the Spirit. That's why we're going through it the way we are for without them, sanctification just doesn't, doesn't happen at a positional level, and it doesn't happen at a practical level. We don't understand it. And then secondly, um, if Paul's progression of thought as he goes through these chapters, going from dead to sin to dead to the law, and then alive in the Spirit, if that is not understood, it can lead to several wrong interpretations or misrepresentations regarding the relationship between the believer and sin and between the believer and the law and between the believer and the Holy Spirit. So we need to get this. This is very important. So you have your sermon insert. We're right now going to try to connect the principles between particularly chapter 6 and chapter 7. So Paul introduced the subject of chapter 7 in chapter 6 and verse 14, where we read, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And then in the rest of chapter 6, which we've covered already, I'm not going to recover that, he went on to explain in those, the rest of that chapter that grace does not free us to sin, but rather persuades us to pursue righteousness. Grace is always directing us toward that end, to be a slave of righteousness for God's glory. But there are those, would have been certainly among the readers that Paul wrote this letter to, but there are those who no doubt immediately objected to his teaching on the fact that we're no longer under law. Now remember, he is throughout the letter so far, kept raising what we've termed as the objector. With a, a person from a Jewish background, whether they consider themselves to be part of the church or not, or he's representing just the Jewish mindset towards what he's teaching about the gospel, there's the objector. And this is true in our text as well. There would have been those that objected to his teaching that he raised in chapter 6 and verse 14 that were under grace and not under law. I mean, surely the law that he's referring to is the law of God, and it, is, it was one of Israel's most precious blessings given from God to them as a nation. And, and to refer to the law, as, as Paul had done, would to be speaking of it in a derogatory fashion. I mean, to speak of deliverance from the law, as he does in chapter 7, would actually seem to be blasphemous to the Jews of his day. By the way, as it would be among many professing Christians today. Because that same mindset is still there. Whether it was Jews in the past, or Jews of today, or professing Christians of today. They would think, how can you say this about the law, that we're free from it? Well, you know, as the Pharisees accused Christ and his disciples of being lawbreakers, and you can read that in the Gospels, why do your disciples not wash their hands before they... uh, What are you doing, uh, you know... uh, Uh, reaching out and touching this sick person, this leprous person. And they were constantly accusing Jesus and the disciples of being lawbreakers. So they also accused Paul. The church has begun and Paul is carrying out his ministry for the Lord. And that was an accusation that came against him on a regular basis, even though he went to the synagogues and preached the gospel there first and then would go out from the synagogues to reach Gentile people as well. Well, we see an example of this in Acts 21, 
in verses 27 and 28. Paul had gone back to Jerusalem at some point, and he was uh, encouraged by the rest of the church leadership there in Jerusalem to help pay for a vow to be complete for a, a brother in the Lord. And so he had gone into the temple, he had paid the vow, paid for that vow, and had his head hair cut. And then it, it's like the enemies attacked, and basically they attacked him this way. Uh, we read, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people, in other words, against the people of Israel being the special people, and the law, the Mosaic law, and this place, the temple. And Paul almost lost his life. He had to be rescued by Roman soldiers there in the temple. They were going to put him to death because they believed that he was teaching against the people, the law, and the temple. Kind of sounds like Jesus. Hey, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. What what are you talking about? Well, he's talking about the temple of his body, of course. But he later would say the temple will be destroyed. It will be brought down. Um, So, what did Paul mean then when he said, in chapter 6, verse 14, that we're under grace and not under law? Was he saying that the law of God was abrogated or repealed? And it's like, let's take a vote. Let's repeal the law. You know, is that what he's saying? Was he saying that Christians should disregard the law? And those were the questions asked in Paul's day. That's what the objector would have been thinking. And they continue to be asked even today by many who call themselves Christians. So what we want to do next is understand a little bit about people under law. Because Paul said we're under grace, not under law. But there are people who are under law. Now frequently, professing Christians who live according to certain standards or a list of positive and negative commandments that they follow, they're often branded as legalists, right? Well, familiar with that term? Maybe you've branded someone that way, or you've been branded that way by someone else. Those who supposedly live in, quote, liberty, are often quick to label others who disagree with their freedom, you know, their freedom, with this word. You legalist, you legalist, you. But consider the Bible is actually full, full of God's commands that he's given to his people, both to Israel in the Old Testament and to the church in the New Testament. And those commands spell out in detail how he wants his people to live. Can we agree with that? Okay, okay. If the very existence of living according to certain standards constitutes legalism, then you better understand God is the one who initiated it and encourages it all the way from the beginning. He gave a command, didn't he? It was just one, but he gave a command. God has given command after command, Old Testament, New Testament, lots of commands. So... Realize if the the existence of laws and regulations and so on is what makes legalism, then God is a legalist. Hmm. But we must understand that obedience to laws and commands doesn't constitute legalism. The obedience to God's command does not, does not make one a legalist. Christian... Christians who live within the boundaries of God's commands are not necessarily legalists. They may be, but they are not necessarily so. So the cornerstone of what the Bible would identify as legalism, and and I recognize the Bible doesn't actually use that term. That is a term that represents views about the law, right, and obedience to it. But the cornerstone of of that would be this. Legalism is ascribing the wrong function to the law. Legalism is ascribing the wrong function to the law. It is misrepresenting the law. 
like the vacuum cleaner salesman. So let me explain what I mean by that. There are many who think that salvation or having a good relationship with God is attained through keeping the law. I think you would recognize that that is so. People think that way. And the thought is that the way for a person to sin less and live more holy is to keep God's commandments. And such people, Paul's going to show in chapter 7, are in bondage. They're in bondage to the law. And they are, in fact, legalists. Hmm. They imagine, they imagine this, that their relationship with God is based on and conditioned by their obedience to the law. Keeping the law. Doing good works, etc. Now, both unbelievers and believers can be legalists. Uh, Unbelieving legalists believe that they are saved, you know, salvation. They are saved by how faithfully they keep God's commandments. They sincerely believe that by living a good life, a life in keeping with the standards of God's law, they will be declared righteous in the sight of God. I had an hour-long conversation with someone yesterday that basically expressed those very things. I've lived a good life. I I really haven't done anything wrong. Well, nothing major anyway. And we talked and we talked and we talked and I was talking about the gospel and I was like, that's not the issue. You're measuring the wrong thing. It's not how good you, you are, even to a list of rules or compared to other people. You've got to measure yourself against God who is perfect and you fall short. Everyone does. And, we, and so I went through the gospel. It had to be at least three or four times I went through the gospel. Every time I would finish, it would come right back. You know, I kind of agree with what you're saying, but I've lived a pretty good life and I really haven't done anything wrong. Uh, you know, I think, I think everyone knows right from wrong. And it was just a, a long conversation. That is the, this kind of view, right? That if I, if I live a good life, if I keep the law, if I... You know, if I'm, I keep it, especially if I keep it better than other people, and certainly God will have to let me in. I will deserve that. And, and so for those people, keeping the law is a must. For unbelievers who think, well, I want to be right with God, that's how they think. And then believing legalists are those who rest in the belief that keeping the law, being good, you know, keeping the list of things is on their list is the way to stay in a good relationship with God and and the way to have victory over sin. Just keep keep the law, get do the list. So in each case, obedience to the law, to certain rules and regulations, is the focus of their attention, right? That's the focus. Keeping the law, doing good. They constantly are assessing themselves based on how well, how well they keep the law, the moral code. And so they are ascribing the wrong function to the law when they do that. They are misrepresent, uh, misrepresenting what the law can do for a person. Now what we should know definitively by now is that the scripture states in many places that no one can be right with God by keeping the law. I mean, uh, Romans 3.20, we looked at that passage together right before we started talking about justification. It was the end of, you know, us being condemned. And Paul wrote there, he says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since the law, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. How am I going to be right with God? Paul says, it's not by keeping the law. It's not possible. It's not possible to be right with God by keeping the law. In Galatians 2 and verse 16, he wrote, Yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Wow, that kind of repetitious verse. You can't be justified by the works of the law. It's got to be by faith. By the way, I'm telling you, it's by faith in Jesus Christ, and, and you can't do it by the law. And, and one last time, you can't do it by the law. So, the apostle makes that very clear, as well as other writers in the New Testament. You cannot be justified or made right with God, declared right with God, based on how good you keep the law. But the apostle is also teaching in this chapter that we can't win over sin's temptation by our self-determination to keep the law, by our own power to keep the law. God desires us to be free, free from such faulty beliefs. What beliefs? That I can be right with God by keeping the law. Or I can maintain a good relationship with God by keeping the law. And the reason he wants us to be free from that is because it's debilitating and it's depressing and it leads to despair. And that's all uh, seen in chapter 7. We'll see in the latter part of chapter 7 that being under law leads to frustration, not true sanctification. It leads to misery, not joy and peace. It leads to defeat and not victory. That's all in chapter 7. So, let me do one more thing before we kind of jump into the first several verses of chapter 7. And that is to show you a parallel argument that exists between chapter 6 and chapter 7. It's beautiful how Paul does this. This three principle uh, 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 explanation of sanctification. Dead to law, dead I mean, dead to sin, dead to law, and alive in the Spirit. But there's a parallel argument that he is putting forth in chapter 6 and 7. So, number one, and I've just put it in for you in your insert so you wouldn't have to take time to try to write them all down too long anyway. So, number one, he presents what we were, right? What we were was in bondage to sin before we were justified by faith. And that was chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, what we were before faith in Christ, we were in bondage to the law. Well, we'll, I think, understand what bondage to the law means uh, as we go through this. Number two, he says, we died to sin in Christ, right? We died to sin's penalty and power when we put our faith in Christ. That's chapter 6. In chapter 7, we died to the law in Christ. What does he mean by that? We died to the condemnation that the law brings on those who violate it, those who break it, the guilt that it brings down on people. We died to that. In uh, number 3, there's an analogy of a slave-master relationship in chapter 6. What you're either... Uh, a slave to sin, sin is your master, or you're a slave of righteousness, God is your master. An analogy of slave and master. And in chapter 7, we just read it a little bit ago, there's an analogy of a wife and husband. Which is not saying that the wife is a slave to the husband, by the way. Just just saying. Okay. Number four, the problem of yielding to sinful living in chapter 6. That's why he says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't present the members of your body as uh, weapons of uh, unrighteousness to sin, but present your members as weapons of righteousness to God to be used by him for his glory and purposes. So there was that problem of yielding to sinful living, even though we've been justified by faith. We still struggle with it. And then in chapter 7 is the problem of yielding to legalistic living or law living that is a tendency that people think well if I just do better if I just keep it better if I just am more perfect in keeping it then I'll be okay and we have a tendency to yield to that kind of thinking everyone does and then lastly the problem is solved in chapter 6 by knowing that we've died to sin and that we're not under law, we're under grace and, and we live as slaves of God. That was 
chapter 6, right? And then chapter 7, the problem is solved by knowing that we've died to the law, and we recognize that we're not able to keep the law, and we start serving by the newness of the Spirit, not the old written code. That's chapter. So you see the parallel argument? It's, it's, it's quite beautiful and helps us to understand the argument that he's making about sanctification. And, and that argument basically says chapter 6 and 7 is helping us to understand more about what we were prior to faith in Christ and then understand our position in Christ, the difference that it makes. But it will not, chapter 6 and 7 will not give you a sanctified living. It will not give you victory over seven. That does I mean, over sin. That doesn't come until chapter 8. That's the argument that he's making. So, let's see if we can begin to understand chapter 7. And we'll just go through the, the first six verses this morning. But Paul will rever- reveal three things about the doctrine of sanctification in this chapter. As a, uh, particularly as it relates to the law and, and, uh, and believers, I suppose. So, first we'll see, we, we'll see that we will not sin less and live holy until we understand that we've died to the law in Christ. That's verses 1 through 6. We will not sin less and live holy. We will not live a sanctified life unless we understand that we've died to the law in Christ. And then second, we'll see that we will not sin less and live holy until we understand the true value of the law. We read that. It was verse 7 through uh, 12. He explained that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what it was to covet until the law said, you shall not covet. And, and, and then he goes through that whole argument. It's like, once I realized this was the law, then... You know, sins, you know, my, the, my sinful passions are rising up and telling me, don't do that, don't obey that, that's ridiculous. Um, so he expresses really the idea that we're not going to sin less. We're not going to live a sanctified life unless we understand the true value of the law. And basically, that idea is it can't save us. The law could never justify us. He's already made that very clear. And then third, we will not sin less and live holy until we understand our inability, our inability to keep the law by our own self-determination. That's going to be chapter 7, verse 13, through the end of that chapter. And when we cover that next week, I think it's going to be kind of eye-opening for us to understand that in its context and meaning and it's going to shatter some of the way that we've been thinking about ourselves, about the law, and about sin. So that's just a you know carrot to get you to be here next week. You want to be here to hear that. So let's just take the first point again. We will not sin less and live holy until we understand that we have died to the law. That's verses 1 through 6. Now, just again, a little review. Remember that the subject of these chapters 6 through 8 is sanctification, how believers have been set apart from sin and unto God as his possession and for his purposes and glory. And these chapters primarily, primarily deal with our positional relationship with God. It's more focused on our position in Christ rather than our practice as Christians. Although, he makes the point that our position in Christ impacts our practical relationship with Christ. So, from a practical standpoint, uh, these chapters explain how we can sin less and live more holy for the glory of God because we are in Christ if we have placed our faith in Him. So, if we have... If we've been justified by faith in Christ, the question would be, well, how then should we live, right? If we've been declared righteous in the sight of God by our faith in Christ, how should we live? And Paul's first point to that question was that, understand that you're dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ. So, because that's your position, stop letting sin have any 
control over your life. Make the right choices. Make the right choices. You can do it. Because sin doesn't have power over you anymore. God does. God does. And grace motivates you to honor God. So that was chapter 6. And his second point is that as believers, we are dead to the law. So think with me for a moment about that. If these principles or points are understood, then why would we ever conclude that the best way to be a slave of righteousness, as Paul described it in chapter 6, you know, having been set free from slavery to sin, we become slaves of righteousness, verse 17 and following. He said, if that's the case, why would we ever think that being a slave of righteousness is best accomplished by faithfully obeying the commands, the law, by keeping it? Why would we ever think that? So the first point Paul's actually making is this very imp- in this, this important chapter is that freedom from the law is experienced when we understand that we've died to the law in the death of Christ. Now, isn't that very similar to what he said in chapter 6? That we had died to sin in the death and resurrection of Christ. We were raised in newness of life, right? Chapter 6, you remember that? <laughs> okay. Even though you might not say it if I asked you, Okay, you, 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 you remember that. That's good. We, we died to sin in the death of Christ. It no longer has authority over us. We're dead to its penalty and its power. So here he's saying when we believed in Christ, not only did we die to sin, but we also died to the law. Inasmuch as the law which brought condemnation for our breaking of it was born by Christ. So we died to the penalty and the power of the law over us. What was the power of the law? What was the power of it? To convince us, make us feel guilty, to live ashamed and guilty lives. Because, ah, I did it again. Oh, I did it again. Oh, I can't believe I keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Any of you ever think that way? That was the power of the law. And the penalty of the law was like, you're a lawbreaker, you're guilty. Condemnation coming your way, baby. And that's the penalty of the law, right? So, if a person is ever to be free from the tyranny of legalism, it has to begin with an understanding of doctrine. And the doctrine specifically is our union with Christ in his death. In him we are dead to sin and dead to the law. That's what he's saying in chapter 6 and 7. So Paul begins his argument with the principle. But before he actually states the principle... He makes an acknowledgement of what he knows about the readers. Okay? You see it in verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. So as we've already acknowledged and seen throughout the letter, Paul is frequently addressing members of the church body who had a Jewish background, right? There were Gentiles and Jews in that church. And so it's likely this is who he's addressing when he says that. Brothers, not only brothers in Christ, but brothers in Jewish, you know, as, as Jewish people as well. I'm speaking to you. You should know this. That's what he means by our don't you know. Of course you should know this because I'm speaking to you who actually know the law. Well, the Gentiles didn't know the law, did they? I mean, those pagan Gentiles came out of worshiping Apollos and Diana and all these other myriad of gods, you know, even the unknown God in Athens. And it's like they didn't know the laws of God unless they had been going to the synagogue as a God-fearer and were learning the law of God there. But the Gentiles basically didn't know it. So he's, he's obviously addressing those who had a Jewish background, and maybe is hinting at also that this is where the objector would be found, the objector that we have addressed over and over again. So he, he then states, oh, it, here's the question, so you, you should know this, but will you receive it? <laughs> That's kind of the idea. Will you receive what I'm actually saying about our relationship with the law? So, He then states 
a simple principle. Everyone should be able to understand this principle. Everyone. Boy, girl, men, women. The, the law is, he says, the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Right? That's the principle. The law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So, we probably all heard this phrase before. Dead people tell no lies. Right? And many of us have seen the movie that was Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I don't know why I brought that into it, but, you know, that Steve Martin movie, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. And I think that most of us have also heard someone say, dead people don't pay taxes. <laughs> no, their descendants do, but the dead people, they don't pay taxes anymore. So most people, I think this is true, most people dread one particular month of the year. It has nothing to do with weather. It has everything to do with taxes. It's the month of April the, the, and the reason that it is dreaded is because, according to the law, it's the, the, the law of the United States, it's the month that we have to pay taxes. And, and we are under the law of the United States, and according to that law, we have to pay, right? We have to pay taxes. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Poor people don't always have to pay taxes. Rich people somehow get out of paying their taxes, Middle class is really burdened on us. But the point is all the same. April, bad month because we're under law and the law tells us to pay taxes. However, there is a truth here. Dead people don't pay taxes. They don't have to pay taxes. So you could have an IRS agent go to the graveyard and stand over the grave of a citizen you know, of the United States, all day long, and he's standing on the grave demanding that that person, that dead person, pay taxes. And guess what? It's not happening. It's never happening. Why? Because the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he or she lives. Right? That's the principle. The law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he or she lives. So let me, let me share an illustration of this principle. The man is, and this is, this is not like a far-fetched thing. I think you'll see that. The man is speeding down the road. It's not going the speed limit. I mean, he's really, he's really speeding down the road. And a policeman's sitting there, and he catches him on his radar. He's like, man, that guy is speeding. He gets out and follow, you know, follows that guy and eventually he turns the lights on. He's going to pull the guy over. And the policeman is thinking that the speeder is going to receive what he deserves. And that is the just penalty of the law. A ticket that will either take some points away or have to pay a fine or something like that. But as the man looks in his rearview mirror and he sees the red lights going and there might maybe be the noise being made. He speeds up and begins to drive recklessly, changing lanes, veering through traffic, and he's driving very dangerously for other people and himself. And the policeman is now thinking, boy, is he going to get what he deserves? I mean, the, the penalty, the just penalty, oh, it's really going to hammer him now. And then the, the man who's speeding leaves the road and runs into a utility pole and he dies. And he dies. Well, guess what? The policeman is no longer thinking. Boy, that speeder is going to get the just penalty of the law. He may be thinking he got what he deserved, but he's not thinking he's going to receive the just penalty of the law. Why? Because the law has jurisdiction over someone as, as long as as he or she lives. No more. If, if, you, if you die, the law has no jurisdiction over you. And that is what Paul is saying. Law is binding on, on people only as long as they live, right? Well, I've, uh, you know, Paul's stated the principle and I've tried to illustrate it, but Paul, it, it's clear, he thinks he needs to illustrate it. And that's what he does in verses 2 and 3. 
He's illustrating that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as he or she lives. And he puts it this way. He uses the marriage bond analogy. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released. She's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another person, she's not an adulteress at that point. So it should be noted. I want to make sure I do note it. It should be noted that these verses are not definitive teaching on marriage and divorce. That's not the point at all. The point is he's giving an illustration that the law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as that person lives. That's his point. That's his one central point. So because of our union with Christ and his death, we have died to the law in the sense that we should never, ever live under the false belief that keeping the law, be obedient to the law, is all that is necessary to start a right relationship with God or to build a good relationship with God. We should never think that our failure to keep the law will result in our condemnation by God or that we're really going to get it. God's you know, ready with the two-by-four to whack us when we don't keep it. Simply put, we've died to the law. It no longer has jurisdiction over us as Christians. That's his point. And by the way, did you notice the beauty of it? We've been joined to another we were released from the law. We were joined to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the two don't get put together. Just like being you know, dead in sin and dead to sin, they don't go together. <laughs> they don't. It's one or the other. So, so is the case here. So then Paul, actually, I'm, he's done this as we go through Romans. He gives the application that he's trying to make for the principle. And that's in verses 4 through 6. He applies the principle and its illustration. And the thing that he first teaches is that just as death terminates a marriage bond, so has our union with Christ in his death terminated our relationship to legalism, our bondage to legalism, to the false belief that if I keep the law, I'll be right with God. This is how he puts it. Likewise, my brothers, he says that term again, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that you might bear fruit for God. So, who was it that hung on the tree and died? It was Jesus, right? Jesus Christ, our Lord, hung on the tree and died. But by our faith union with him, we have shared in his death, both to sin and to the law. That's what Paul is saying. And since we've died with Christ, we are no longer under the jurisdiction of the law and the condemnation that it brings for breaking it. That's his point. That's his point. Boy, we need to hear this because we have such a tendency to yield to the, the, the way of thinking that if I keep the law, I'll be okay. That's our tendency. So let's hear this. No, the law has no jurisdiction over us. Now let me sh- make sure that we understand that to have died to the law, I need to balance this out, to, to have died to the law doesn't mean that we no longer have any relationship to it. it. It doesn't have jurisdiction over us, it doesn't bring condemnation to us, but that doesn't mean we don't have any relation to it, relationship to it. That means the text does not say, notice this, the text does not say that the law died to us, but that we died to the law. Right? The law didn't die. We died to its jurisdiction and its condemnation. So the law still reveals the kind of life that should be lived to bring glory to God, right? I mean, which one of us is going to say was like, if you just took the Ten Commandments? Idolatry? You think it's okay to be idolatrous? No, the, the command to have no other God before me, make no graven image, that's still... 
you know, we have a relationship with that. You know, don't murder. Well, of course we have a relationship to that, right? This still reveals the kind of life that God would have us uh, to live that would bring glory to him. And surely we're not free from law in every conceivable sense, for the truth is every child of God should love the law. They should love the law of God. Why? Because it so clearly reveals the nature of God and the nature of people. The law is beautiful in doing that. For example, this love of the law is expressed by David in Psalm 119, that long, long psalm, you know, that you begin and you think, will I ever get to the end of this psalm? And every verse in it is talking about the law, except for two. Every verse talks about the law and God's statutes and so on. And this is what David says in verse 18 of Psalm 119. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. How many Christians do you know would think of the law that way? Oh, that is wondrous. Uh They don't generally think that way. Things like, oh, it's hard. It's, you know, oh, the weight that I feel from it. No, David says it's wondrous things in the law of God. And then he says in verse 97 of that psalm, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. Well, you don't generally meditate on things that you dislike. Unless you're planning revenge or something, you know. But you meditate on the things that are pleasing to you, that, that, that lift you up, right? And then he says one more verse in 165 of Psalm 119. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Hmm. So we should love the law. It's not saying that there's no significance to the law for us in Christ. It just means that the jurisdiction that it had over us and the condemnation that it brought for breaking it has been put away. And, and, and also notice this, right? That the meaning is that believers are no longer bound to those rigid requirements of law and the consequences of breaking it. We're not, we're not bound to a list of rules and regulations, but we are bound. We are bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. And do you remember this from the Gospels? That the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the law? <laughs> he didn't think the law was bad. He fulfilled it. Also notice that the intended result of our freedom from law and our union with Christ is stated by Paul. He says it was in order that we might bear fruit for God. This brings it right down to our day by day, does it? In order that we might bear fruit for God. So when we were slaves of sin, the fruit of our life, Paul said, was shameful. That was chapter 6, verse 21. And he says, you know, think about your life. What, what was the fruit that came to you? It, it brought shame to you as you think about it now. But as those who have died to sin and died to law, we can actually now bear fruit for the glory of God. And what is that fruit that we should be bearing? Well, at least it is the fruit of the Spirit, right? It's recorded for us in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And notice the last line of this. Against such things there is no law. Law doesn't bring harsh condemnation if that's how you're living, if that's your attitudes, if that's what's coming out of you. You'll never find a law from God that says, bad, bad, you're going to get it for that. No, no. We now can bear fruit for God, and that, and that fruit also has certainly changed aspirations and good attitudes and encouraging words and good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Well, we're going to stop short of where I wanted to get today. We're going to stop at verse 5. Oh, my I just got, got kind of excited as I was going through this. So we'll pick it up at verse 5. That's a good thing. We're going to go through the whole chapter. We'll pick it up at verse 5 next week. So what are the three basic principles for us to take away regarding the doctrine of sanctification? 
Chapter 6 gives us the first one. What is it? We are dead to sin. It's penalty and it's power. Second principle, chapter 7. We are dead to the law. It's jurisdiction over us and the guilt and condemnation that it brings for breaking it. And the third foundational principle is in chapter 8. We are alive in the spirit. What the law couldn't do, Paul will say, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, condemning sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, for we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. So, are you dead to the law? Well, I mean, we're going to contemplate it thoroughly next week again. Are you dead to the law? Say, well, yeah, I mean, Paul said I'm dead to the law. I must be dead to the law. But are you really dead to the law? Are you really dead to thinking, if I just keep the commandments, if I just live the good life, if I just do this and this and this and this, then I'll be okay with God. And if I don't, oh boy, I'm in big trouble. You know, I, 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 didn't, I didn't give an offering to the Lord this day. And then later in the week, something happens that, you know, a pipe breaks in your house. Like, well, that wouldn't have happened if I would have given to God. That's legalism. That's, that's the way the legalists think. I, I, I was in such a rush this morning, I couldn't do my quiet time. And then I got on the road, and, and I, I ran that red light. I, the policeman pulled me over and gave me a ticket for it. If I would have had my quiet time... That wouldn't have happened. No, if you wouldn't have run through the red light, it wouldn't have happened. It has nothing to do with you keeping your quiet time. You see, that's the way the legalist thinks. Let's not think that. Let's be dead to sin. It's penalty and power. And dead to the law. It's jurisdiction. It's penalty. And it's power over us. Then we can bear fruit for God, and he deserves that. Lord, we are thankful for your word, thankful for you using the Apostle Paul to write these very deep words that can be difficult to understand, but you've given us the Holy Spirit, so we can understand them. And more than that, we can live them. Help us to do that for your glory. Lord, we thank you that you provide all that we need, not only for spiritual sustenance, but also for physical sustenance. We're going to eat a meal together, and you provided that for us. We're thankful for that. We give you praise for all of this in Jesus' name. Now, one final reminder. uh, Pictures over here, if you need a picture for the directory. And if you would allow those that work in the kitchen that may want to get their pictures done, let them get their pictures done first. Uh, so they can go over, so we get to enjoy our milk. Okay.